And you can really show how policy benefits or harms your audience in a way that's really, really understandable to people. Maps are inherently kind of, uh, people understand them, especially, you know, if they're sort of a more local map, you can see exactly where you live and see exactly how things will change for you. And I think that that can have a really, really big impact. Hello and welcome to the Civic Hacker Podcast. I'm your host, Lori McNeil, founding director of the Civic Hacker Network and the Civic Hacker Summit. Our mission is to support people who use data and technology to make a positive impact in their communities. We do this by equipping and empowering people to move their change-making projects forward. We also amplify the work our membership is doing by providing a platform through which Civic Hackers can publicize their projects, collaborate, and get the resources and support they need. At the time of this recording, it is GIS Week! Sorry about that. (laughs) GIS, of course, stands for Geospatial Information Systems. GIS is a scientific framework for gathering, analyzing, and visualizing geographic data to help us make better decisions about policy, funding, distribution of services, resources, you name it. And this week in November, we are joining in the international celebration of GIS technology by bringing you a very special GIS-focused talk from, you guessed it, the Civic Hacker Summit archives. This session was presented by Esther Needham. She was a project manager on the data analytics team at Azavia. Azavia is a certified B Corp that applies geospatial analytics software and research for positive civic, social, and environmental impact. Azavia also offers some data tools we'll hear about uh, toward the end as well. Esther's talk is titled, Three Questions You Can Answer with Maps. And you're going to be so inspired by the three case studies she covers. The information is sure to get your wheels turning, thinking about how you can leverage maps and open data for advocacy and even to secure funding. She tells a story of a literal million dollar map, people. So get ready to take some notes. Uh, I don't introduce him in the original recording, but toward the end, you hear an additional voice that belongs to Patrick Hahn, who was a product specialist with Azavia and was in the virtual room at the time as well. Shout out to Patrick. Since this is a podcast, you're obviously going to be missing out on the visual aspects of this talk. But I'll let you know how you can access the video of this presentation afterward. Enjoy three questions you can answer with maps. Um, Just a bit about Esther. She is the project manager of Azavia's data analytics team. Um, She received her master's degree in city and regional planning from the University of Pennsylvania with a focus in statistics and geospatial technology. She has used data and geospatial analysis to answer questions related to public health, refugee resettlement, and the relationship between political candidate tweets and demographic data in New York City. And with that, we are going to um, join Esther. Hi, everybody. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, 
My name is Esther. We're going to talk about um, three questions that civic and nonprofit leaders can answer with mapping. Um, so my name is Esther. I think Lori gave an introduction to me, but I'm the project manager for the data analytics team at Azavia. Um, I have a background in urban planning and worked a lot with different nonprofits. Um, so I work at a company called Azavia. Uh, we focus a lot on civic software, data analytics, but especially mapping and geospatial technology. So we are actually a B Corporation. So B Corporation means that we are a for-profit organization, but we have a mission. So part of our mission is that all of our work should have a civic and social impact for good. This means a lot of different things, um, but one of the big things is that it means we work with a lot of nonprofits and a lot of um, local and state governments. They're kind of our main clients. Um, we also do a couple different fellowship programs. Um, so today we're going to talk about three different case studies. So um, they kind of all fall within some different questions. So where are the areas with the highest need? Um, that's an organization called Devasi. How can you measure access to facilities and services? Um, that's with the Delaware Division of Parks and Recreation. And how would a policy change impact a community and how can you visualize that? And that's with a project called Keystone Crossroads. Um, so jumping right in, um, Devasi stands for the Delaware Valley Association for the Education of Young Children. They're an organization uh, located in Philly that deals with um, everything sort of around us in the Delaware Valley. And one of their uh, uh, parts of their mission is to help provide high quality childcare um, for children in this area. So they had a question and they wanna know where is there actually a, a big need for more high quality childcare? And that's sort of the question that we help them answer. So by answering that question and asking that question, um, it actually resulted in them winning a million dollars in funding so um, that's great, uh, super great results. And so how do they do that? Um, so we used open data. Uh, we modeled the need for uh, high quality childcare. Uh, this is specifically in Philadelphia. Um, we mapped that data. We visualized some summary statistics. And the big thing that I think um, is a huge takeaway is that we created tailored reports to um, the elected officials in this area. So um, this is, I'll talk about this a little bit more at the end, but this is kind of just a sample of what these elected official reports might look like. So there's a page that kind of has a map and it sort of highlights the district that is appropriate for that elected official and then shows some summary statistics about how their district stacks up with the rest of the city or with other districts of the same um, geographic scale. So this project used a lot of open data. Um, we used population data from the decennial census we also use a lot of different demographic data from the American Community Survey, um, which is a different type of survey that the census does. Um, we also have great uh, open data in Philadelphia, so we're able to use the location of farmers markets and healthy corner stores. Um, and we also got a bunch of different boundary files from something called PASDA, which is a sort of open data portal for the entire state of Pennsylvania. Um, so just taking a quick look at what this data looks like, um, this is what the census tracts look like in, in Philadelphia. Um, city council districts, we have the state house districts, state senate districts, congressional districts, um, and then these farmers markets and healthy corner stores um, that I mentioned. So it's great that we have access to this and healthy corner stores are actually a specific designation in Philadelphia. Um, and we want to take a look at the distance from those. So kind of taking into more account than just the actual location, sort of who might be um, near these different areas and actually have better access to healthy food. Um, so all these sort of factors were taken into account. So there's a lot of different stuff I didn't show um, that came from the American Community Survey of all this different demographic data that we use in our model. So 
There's a lot of methodology backing up this model that we got from Debasey, working really closely with them. They're sort of experts in this field of knowing which factors are important for thinking about childcare, especially high quality childcare. So we created this model that sort of looks at the whole, um, uh, the whole city of Philadelphia and kind of went census tract or census block um, and sort of figured out what the risk would be um, and where that need is for high quality childcare. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of sort of stuff going on behind the scenes here. But the great thing about this is um, this model is made entirely with open data. So you could do this right now for your organization um, just with the data that's available online. Um, but we did also get some data from Tavasi. So they shared a spreadsheet with us of childcare programs. Um, and really importantly, this included their addresses and their quality rankings. So the quality rankings is sort of an external ranking um, of the quality of the childcare in that particular uh, center. Um, that's not something that we ranked, um, but it had the addresses. And that's really, really important because addresses are something that are actually, you know, as far as data goes, relatively easy to get. If you have a lot of volunteers or you have a lot of clients of some kind, um, it's likely that you might be able to capture their address information in some way. And the great thing about address data is that you can do something called geocoding and you can put that address data on the map. So um, geocoding basically means you're getting a latitude and longitude and you can put a point. So this is what that um, spreadsheet looks like when you geocode it. These are the location of all the childcare centers in the city. Um, what we really care about is the high quality childcare centers. So you can see kind of highlight those and it's really a pretty small percentage of the total um, child care uh, centers in the city. So if you can overlay those child care centers with that surface of needs that we talked about, um, but again, really focused on high quality. So kind of really put in those high quality child care centers and the black boundaries that show up here are actually city council districts. So we did this for all the different um, elected official districts in the city, but I'm just sort of focusing on um, city council. So that's what that looks like. And we took those and we turned them into reports, like I mentioned. So this would be maybe what the first page of the report would look like, um, basically just looking at it throughout the entire city, kind of get a feel for what the city looks like, and there's sort of some summary information at the top there. Um, but really what's important here is that we did these sort of tailored reports to specific elected officials. So this one was for um, Councilman Bobby uh, Hennen, Heenan, I'm not sure, um, and he was for City Council District 6 at the time. So this is really important. We're sort of calling them out by name, um, and we're actually highlighting their specific district on the map so they can kind of look at um, exactly what's happening in their district, which is great, um, but also they can compare it with um, other districts. So you can see here that City Council District 6, um, only 8.8% of their child care programs are ranked as high quality uh, in comparison with the rest of the city where it's 14%, which is also still not very high, but uh, City Council District 6 is really lagging uh, pretty far behind. Um, so these really hit home with uh, City Council, um, and we actually, um, uh, you know, created all these reports, and then we gave them to Debasey, and they handed these out. And City Council was really moved by this, and they actually, um, like I mentioned, they uh, awarded Debasey $500,000 in funding, uh, which was actually matched by a local philanthropic organization here called the William Penn Foundation, for an additional $500,000. So Debasey um, uh, was able to win a million dollars and they took that pot of money and they used it to directly improve childcare. So different childcare organizations that were not ranked as high quality were able to go to Debasey and apply for funding to improve their uh, childcare ranking. So really directly impacting uh, the advocacy work that Debasey does. Um, 
So some key takeaways uh, from this uh, case study here um, is that targeted maps can be really, really impactful and data isn't as hard as you think it is to get. So collecting address data um, is really important. Just start doing it now, it's an easy thing. Um, if you have sign-up sheets or whatever it is that you do, try to get people's addresses. Um, it can be really impactful later to see those on a map and you can do, I mean, I didn't show a lot of it here, but there's a lot of other stuff you can do even with just points uh, addresses. You can do a bunch of spatial statistics and clustering and heat maps and stuff like that. Um, so it's a really low effort, high impact way um, to get some good data. Also leverage open data. Uh, like I mentioned, we did all this modeling of the need for childcare in Philadelphia entirely with open data, which is amazing. So don't forget that you have that resource. Um, and if you find a creative way to sort of match that up with whatever data you have internally, you can do a lot. Um, and finally, I think one of the big takeaways here, like I mentioned, is that tailoring reports and statistics to specific elected officials is really important and can be really, really impactful. Um, you know, this was, this happened a few years ago when we did this with DeVacy, and I think that these were um, created as maybe like paper maps and handed out. I'm not exactly sure what the distribution method was, but it was directly to those council members. But these days with social media and Twitter, there's a ton of different options. And if you can sort of tailor those um, to different people and get it out in the world, I think you can, uh, you can make a pretty big impact. Uh, so our next case study is with the Delaware Department of Natural Resources and Environmental Control, and specifically with their Division of Parks and Recreation. Um, so their question was, how accessible are parks and recreation centers? So every five years, um, divisions of parks and recreation across the country do five-year plans, um, sort of reassess uh, where they're at, and specifically the year that we did this with Delaware, they really wanted to look at accessibility of all kinds, all different types of modes. Um, so the open data that they used was, again, that decennial census data for population by block group. Um, also some transportation data, uh, which is important when you're talking about access, and some land use data for where residential areas are, as well as, of course, the, um, some different park information. So just taking a look at that, uh, these are the roads for Delaware. Uh, we can see the transit routes really connecting the north and south parts of the state. Uh, transit stops, parks and natural areas, trails, uh, which are one of the things that we are also measuring access to, and trail access points, which is obviously really important uh, when you're trying to figure out how people are gonna access those trails. Census block groups uh, looked at a bunch of different demographics, but especially just overall population numbers and residential land use areas. I'll talk a little bit later about why that's important to use. Um, some other data that we got, this was directly from Delaware, was a little bit more information about some parks and recreation centers. So I showed that we had some data about parks and natural areas, but Delaware had um, some more in-depth data that sort of talked about the different types of amenities that were available. So for example, if you want to know which parks have uh, basketball hoops or something like that, um, they had a lot of that amenity information. So we could use that to measure access in a lot of different ways. Um, so kind of the process here was multi-step. So we did something called creating a population surface. Um, this was a lot of sort of sophisticated statistical analysis and I'll sort of show what that looks like in a little bit. Um, the point of that was to sort of figure out where people are actually living in the state of Delaware. And then we did something called network analysis, which is, uh, Something that you can do in um, the GIS software that we use and we use that to create travel sheds so looking at where people are able to access and then an interesting feature of this project was that we actually created some custom tools um, so that later uh, Delaware if they wanted to could go back and sort of reanalyze um, remodel what the access was 
if they put in a new park or they, maybe there's a new transit line or something like that, they can recalculate that and maybe even use that for years down the road when they're making their next plans. They can sort of run all of this themselves. So we created this custom tool for them. So uh, really quickly, I just want to talk about travel sheds. Um, sword people might be familiar with, but maybe not. So it's something that answers the question, if you have a given starting location and a method of travel, um, how far can you travel in a certain amount of time? That's what a travel shed is. So you can see here, this is a five minute walk shed to a specific area. If you're walking for 10 minutes, this is how far you could get. If you're walking for 20 minutes, this is how far you could get. And this is using um, some of those tools that I was talking about, like network analysis. Um, and you kind of combine them all, you can sort of see, layer it up, and see where different people could get to given a certain amount of time. Um, so this is a population service. I mentioned that we had the data for uh, residential land use areas. So this is just sort of a better way to allocate where people are actually living. Um, obviously, you can get population information from the census, and you can have that at the census block level, but sometimes there might be a big part of that census block is uh, manufacturing, and people obviously aren't actually living in that part. So this is just a way to reallocate it, um, something that we do um, when we do some spatial analysis work. So um, it's a little complex, but I can answer questions about that if anyone had them later. Um, so yeah, we're just uh, combining census tract population with non-residential land use. So this is uh, an example of what some of the maps we completed look like. Um, there's a lot of them, so only sort of included two examples here, but uh, you can see here that there's the different travel shed, so um, the different colors of pink are actually not times, uh, different times for the same mode, but different modes. So it's a walk shed of 15 minutes is the dark pink, um, medium pink is transit shed of 15 minutes, and the drive shed of one mile. So this is what Delaware was designating as county as accessible. Um, and there's a lot of gray dots on the map there, and you can see that's kind of like a dot density way to look at population. So we have a bunch of summary statistics and data behind that, and sort of made of a report for them, but just to have it visually on the map as well, one dot equals about 100 people. So you can kind of take a look and just kind of get an idea of where you see big clusters of gray dots that are outside of those access areas uh, where people might not be able to access uh, different parks and recreation services. So this is sort of the top part of the state of Delaware near Wilmington. Um, and just kind of zooming in a little bit more, just so you can see kind of exactly what those um, walk, transit, and drive sheds might look like. Um, so we created a bunch of these maps, gave them over to them, as well as those custom tools that we made, and uh, they included those in their plan and like a big report to kind of work on their um, parks and recreation access and facilities. So even though this is a really specific example, um, talking about, you know, like how can you walk to a park, um, I think this is applicable to a lot of different things, especially anything that has a physical location. So if you're talking about different facilities or services that nonprofits or governments might have, um, and those are actually had a brick and mortar location. You can do anything, any type of access like this to kind of see um, what type of people, uh, what type of people and how many people are able to access your services. So um, here's some takeaways from this. So you can really access gaps. So if you want to look at which neighborhoods or residents maybe can't get to your facilities, which is what Delaware was doing, this is a great way to do it. And you can also look at other more specific things like inclusivity. So if you want to look at like, how inclusive are your park, are your um, facilities or services? Are people of a range of de different demographics able to get there, et cetera? You could kind of take a look at that. Um, you use different census data to approximate the location of those different types of people. You could also use it to single out a specific um, demographic if that's what you're targeting for your service. Um, and you can also use it for site selection. So you can look at where these gaps are 
And if you have funding or you think that you have a plan to maybe expand your services, this is a great way to figure out where you might want to do that, both places where people might not have access and also you can take a look at the demographics of those areas that don't have access and find the one where you might be able to have the biggest impact. You can maybe combine this with some of the ideas from the first um, example where you're looking at need um, and kind of come up with the best place to put your site. Um, so moving on to our last example. Uh, this is with Keystone Crossroads. So Keystone Crossroads is really interesting. It's a media collaboration between four public newsrooms across the state of Pennsylvania. Um, so in this case, the one that's close to us is WHOY, which is the public radio station in Philadelphia. And we worked with them a lot on this project. So they had a really specific question. They want to know how a change in the way that state education funding is distributed will impact each school district in Pennsylvania. Um, so we used some open data again, uh, kind of a recurring theme here. So we got some data from the American Community Survey, specifically median household income and some different demographics. And we also got the geographic boundaries for each school district. And this is what the school district boundaries look like. It's quite a few of them. And sort of what the median household income looks like in the state of Pennsylvania. Light blue, uh, lower median household income, and dark blue is uh, higher median household income. Um, we also got some data from Keystone Crossroads. Um, so they provided us with a spreadsheet that calculated the per pupil funding per district based on a percent formula input. So it's a little bit com confusing, but um, basically what's happening in the state of Pennsylvania right now is um, up until recently, uh, state funding for education, which is only a portion of the overall education funding that each school district gets. The other portion is property taxes. So the state funding uh, per school district had not really been reallocated since 1991. Um, there had been a hold harmless policy where each school district was basically getting at least what they got the year before, probably with some type of set percentage increase. Uh, however, that's really leaving out a huge part of the picture. So they're not taking into account population change, enrollment change, the need of the students in those districts, the wealth of the districts. Um, there's a lot of different things. So uh, a few years ago, they, came, they kind of put a commission together to create a different formula for redistributing the funding. So that formula um, is now in place, and it takes into account a lot of the different things that I mentioned, plus a lot of other stuff. Um, but right now, even though that formula is in place, there's only a really small percentage of the overall state funding that is being distributed. So right now it's only 5.98% of state funding gets reallocated, redistributed based on this formula. So what we're gonna look at is how would that change? So we have this spreadsheet and we um, went ahead and calculated the, uh, what the per pupil funding would be per district based on increments of 10 percentage increases. And we joined that uh, funding data with some census data and the boundary files of the school districts. And we created some custom tools and some graphics and it was published with Keystone Crossroads. So this is just kind of a screenshot of one of the articles. There are sort of a series of articles that talked about this, but this is one that featured the tool that we created. Um, so I'm just gonna take full screen here. So uh, the slider at the bottom is actually a little widget that people can interact with. So this is sort of a public facing tool that people could use. Um, and basically, uh, you can slide it around and see, you can see the colors change. So right now we're looking at the current state of funding in Pennsylvania. Um, the dark green is higher uh, per pupil funding and the light green is, a lower, is lower per pupil funding. And I've circled some areas in red there to sort of pay attention to. Those are areas in the state that are kind of um, a little bit more urban, a little bit more dense. And if you're not familiar with Pennsylvania, 
Uh, you can see that the areas at the top of the state and sort of the middle of the state that are, are is kind of where the dark green is clustering. It's also very rural areas. Um, so as we go, you can see, I'm just gonna sort of move it along. We're at 10% here, we keep going. The green sort of starts to spread out um, and leave the rural areas where there's been a lot of population enrollment loss and sort of cluster in these areas of um, more urban areas, kind of there things that are, have more of the issues that are being taken into account with this funding formula. And uh, the top 25 school districts right now with the most funding, I think 23 of them have had significant enrollment loss since 1991. So um, this is really taking into account the way that like people in Pennsylvania have been moving around in the past couple decades. Um, so kind of just zooming in uh, a little bit more. This is the strand Wilkes-Barre area in Pennsylvania. This is what it looks like right now. Um, you can see that the darkest area uh, sort of over on the left there, they're getting the most funding. Um, there's also pop-ups on this map, so you can see that here, looking at the Scranton School District, um, getting about $4,000 per pupil. They rank 221 out of the 500 school districts, so they're sort of right in the middle, but they have a really low median household income um, based on the rankings throughout the state of $37,000. So this is what they look like today with the funding, uh, but if we change it to 100% of the funding can be reallocated based on this formula, you can see that it really, really, really changes. So the dark green sort of clusters around Scranton and Wilkesboro where there's um, uh, more, sort of more dense, sort of a corridor there. Um, and let me just go back so you can see it one more time. It's really shifting a lot. So this tool is really important because there's a potential if 100% of the state funding gets reallocated through this formula to have really, really big impacts throughout the state when it comes to education, which would impact just different districts differently. Obviously, some would benefit a lot, some would lose a lot of funding. It's something that people, you know, it's hard for people to know how that's gonna shake out if it happens. So there's a getting, um, I think WHYY and Keystone Crossroads was hearing from a lot of people. Uh, they're really interested in learning more about, about what's gonna happen. And we got a lot of great feedback from this tool. A lot of people that work in specific school districts being just very thankful that they can now kind of see how their school district will be impacted. Um, okay, so some takeaways from looking at this uh, case study is that by mapping and visualizing policy impacts, you can show how a policy might benefit or harm your audience and their community. And I think importantly, it helps you to really target your outreach based on which communities are most impacted or which communities you're advocating for. So this example um, with school districts is obviously very geographic. School districts have a specific boundary. But I do think that you could do something like similar like this with other information. If you're talking about a policy that's going to impact 18-year-old uh, women per se, you could take census data and sort of try to reallocate it and figure out where there's clusters of, of people of that demographic and, then, and kind of see how they might be impacted by that policy. So whatever policy it is that you're looking at, if you did something like this, it would help you to target your outreach. So in this case, if you're advocating for the funding being reallocated, you might use this tool um, check out which school districts are going to have a really big increase in their funding if all the funding gets reallocated and then you might reach out to them and help them you know advocate on behalf of on behalf of themselves and also for the cause that you're working on um, and similar the other way around if you're advocating for the funding to not get reallocated you would do the opposite thing so I think there's a lot of potential here to really um, use data to inform the way that advocacy is happening on the ground uh, so that's all we have. So just some summaries of uh, key takeaways. So maps and location data can really help you understand a lot. Um, we can look at need, we can model that need across the geographic space, and we can do almost all of that with open data. 
And it can really help you to target the right elected officials and their constituents. If you um, have the boundary files for whatever those districts are, you can do that. Um, you can answer a lot of questions about access, uh, identify who can and cannot access your services, where those gaps might be. And you can really show how policy benefits or harms your audience in a way that's really, really understandable to people. Maps are inherently kind of, uh, people understand them, especially, you know, if they're sort of a more local map, you can see exactly where you live and see exactly how things will change for you. And I think that that can have a really, really big impact. Um, and if you're interested in learning more about this stuff and how to do mapping, how to do more data analysis within your organization, there's a lot of free open source resources that are available. Um, there's some good tutorials online. If you're curious, you could reach out to me and I could send some stuff your way. Uh, but remember, if it's something that's really complicated, you might need a professional to help you out. Um, I think that all of these projects were fairly complex, and I think that there's a lot of sort of stuff that's going on in the background with analysis, especially when it comes to the spatial stuff. Um, and if you're doing this um, that on a project that's going to be you know, used to make a lot of big decisions or to be shared publicly, um, you want to make sure that you have a really strong methodology behind the analysis that you're doing. Um, and you might need to reach out to a professional to chat with them uh, before you dive in. Thank you so much for that, Esther. Um, that was some really awesome information. Um, I'm sure everybody uh, has the wheels turning now, um, thinking about what they can do. Um, so, and then I liked that you kind of had a, a little, you know, word to the wise um, about, you know, if analysis is complex, you know, because, you know, this data is out there. Um, a lot of people can, you know, kind of play around with it, but um, in terms of, you know, advocating for an issue or something that's going to support important decisions, you know, maybe we need to be a little bit more careful. So I was um, just curious um, about, you know, what would you recommend that are some things that people do um, mm -hmm. with data or to look out for um, to make sure that they are being, um, you know, a little bit more careful or not introducing bias or, you know, being misleading? Sure. So um, I would say, like, with everything, Google is your friend. Maybe like check out if anyone has done a similar analysis or if you can find something online. Sometimes you might find a great example that you can kind of mimic. Sometimes you may find a bad example, especially something that's got, gotten bad press and that can kind of guide you as to what to avoid. Um, and I think that also just kind of do an inter internal sanity check. So talk about it with someone else, talk about it with another team member, talk about what the data looks like, what you have, what your methodology is and try to plan that out ahead of time. So sort of scope out the project, that way you, know, you don't sort of get project creep and scope and it's like going everywhere and you don't know. Um, that can kind of uh, help you along the way if you plan it out. And think about your, what your assumptions and conclusions are gonna be. The assumptions that you make when you're doing analysis with data is really important because sometimes they feel minor. You're just like, oh, we think that this is that. But they can actually have a huge impact on um, the project that you're doing. So. I would say definitely talk to somebody about it. Try to get some external feedback um, if you can and receive the feedback well if you get called out on a mistake. So especially if, even if you've already like put something out in the world and you get feedback about it, you know, don't be too defensive. A lot of times people are just kind of trying to help you. Um, and I would say kind of back to the point of sort of scoping it out in the beginning. Um, this is something that's really hard, I think, for everyone, but try to write down everything that you do and keep track of it. So later, that will help you in a million ways. But later, if you want to work on do step two, you want to change something, you want to update it with new data, you will know exactly what you did. But also, if someone comes to you with questions, you can answer them. 
And sometimes if you are making assumptions and you're not really sure, and it's something that you might be like publishing, you can tell people what your assumptions were and that will kind of release you of some of that sort of, you know, negative, maybe negative feedback of where it seems like you're being biased and you don't want people to know. Sometimes you can just tell people, this is what I thought and then they'll accept it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. That transparency, you know, can kind of yeah. protect you. And um, it seems like the bit that you um, talked about doing with, making sure that you took into account, not just, you know, like the census information, but also the residential land use. Mm -hmm. That seems like a case where, you know, your average person may not think about, okay, there's the census and then there's where people live, (laughs) you know, and and the difference there. So, um, you know, thanks for sharing that pro tip um, also. Um, So then another question I had was about um, Devacy. Um, they really nailed it with, obviously, yeah. <laughs> with how they approach using um, the visualizations and, you know, um, getting the specific information to individuals. But, you know, on the flip side, have you, you all much experience or seen cases where, you know, given data and, and maps that the nonprofit just kind of dropped the ball or, or, or I don't want to make it sound too blamey, but, you know, just didn't quite deliver, you know, and land that plane um, the way they could have? Yeah, I think that, um, I don't know if I have a ton of a ton of great examples of that, because I don't always know what happens. You know, sometimes these projects have a really long time horizon. So we might work on something, especially with like nonprofits, and we're talking about funding, you know, those can be very long processes. So I don't always know what happens like a year or two years down the road. Um, but I do think that having a really well thought out process of what, why you're doing this project and like what the point is, is really important because otherwise, like how are you going to use it effectively? So whatever that, whatever that point is, if it's something internal, like have something set up, like be ready for as soon as like the project's done to like run with it and have a plan for it. Sometimes I think you get like, people get really like bogged down and think about how to like do it. And then they don't necessarily think about what the next steps are. And that's, Again, why the Debasey example is so great because they had it, you know, was so thought out, had it ready, had it ready to distribute. And actually, you know, the distribution plan or whatever the plan was to use that data was built into the actual project itself for us, like, creating those reports. So, um, and I also encourage people to just, like, think creatively about how you can do stuff like that. Um, I think, like, you can make, like, tailored maps and have them as, like, little, like, GIFs and tweet them out. Like, that's something cool that I, ha- I, don't, I haven't seen done, and that's not what we do with Debasey, but that could be really effective. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think just having a plan for it is the best thing to do. All right, awesome. Um, now, before I give you back your day, um, I definitely wanted to ask you about um, a product that you guys have um, I, you know, on your site, um, Cicero. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that was used very much in the case studies you showed us, but um, I definitely want to hear a little bit more about that. Sure. So um, Cicero is a database of elected officials and their contact information uh, throughout the country. Um, and it includes a lot of different information, including their um, social media information. So if you want to know like the Facebook page or the Twitter handle for your elected official, Cicero probably has that if they keep that official official in the database. Um, that, that data that's specifically about, you know, more specifically about each elected official wasn't really used in these projects, but the spatial boundary files that I showed for the different districts, that stuff is also in Cicero. 
So it was kind of used a little bit. Um, so Cicero does a lot of different things. Um, I think the main use cases for maybe government or nonprofits um, is using the API. So that means you can access the data sort of remotely from our database and integrate it into an application. So if you make an application like a web app or something and you want people to be able to get on and access who their elected officials are based on their address or something like that, um, you would know what elected official they are based on Cicero data. Um, another thing that people use it for a lot is um, something called district match. Um, it's something that we actually used to kind of do internally as like a project, but we've recently created a new tool. So you can do it online and it's really easy. It's called district match. So if you have a spreadsheet of um, of whatever, of organizations or a bunch of constituents or whoever it might be, and you want to know who their elected officials are. So maybe you're like advocating for something and you want to help tell your constituents who they need to call, but you don't actually know who those people are. You can just take that spreadsheet, you can upload it into our tool called, called District Match, and you can select which things you want it to match to. So there's like a bunch of different types of data you can pick, and then you just receive a spreadsheet back with like a new column or a new couple columns that says who their elected officials are. It's really fast and really, really easy to use. And I think um, we just sort of rolled it out um, this spring and it's been really successful. We've, people have been really happy with it. Yeah. Awesome. Um, we cover now more than 140 local jurisdictions, so municipalities and counties, counties yeah. um, as well as state and federal level data as well. Okay, cool. And so it gets pretty granular for some states. And is that something that is going to continue to grow? Yeah, I think it's likely, um, you know, so we commit, we only commit to adding like a municipality or county or whatever to our database if we know we're going to maintain it. Okay. So we want to make sure that there's like interest. We don't want to like add some like tiny town that no one will like actually be using um, unless somebody really cares. So if we get interest for it, um, we're definitely open to adding stuff to our database. And we actually have a couple different proposals out right, right now with different organizations that are interested in that to help us kind of do some cost sharing because we actually manually add everything. We kind of joke around that it's like custom small batches of data. Um, <laughs> we, don't, we don't do like web scraping or anything like that. We like manually add everything. So it's really, really time consuming. Um, so we want to make sure that uh, people are interested in it. Yeah. It's handcrafted data. Handcrafted. Yes, yeah. handcrafted. <laughs> yeah, we, have a, we have a whole team that works on it. We bring on extra people when there's elections to help keep it up to date, but I think that um, it's hopefully we'll be growing. Yeah, that's what we want. Yeah. Yeah, because I live in a tiny town, so that was a very self-interested <laughs> question. <laughs> I really am excited to have been able to talk to you guys today and um, appreciate you. So thank you for your work. Um, thank you for your time. And yeah, thanks. Yep. And thank you to everybody uh, for tuning Hey there, listener. The excellent talk that you just listened to is even better when accompanied by the visuals. So we have made the video of Azavia's presentation available to all members, not just paid members, for a limited time. Go on over to our website, civic-hackers.org, and sign up for your free membership to be able to access this video and see the awesome examples that the folks from Azavia were talking about. And there are some other perks as well available to our members for free. Also, we've got a promotion up on Twitter for hashtag GIS Week. 
The promo code is GISDAY2020, and it gets you a paid membership to the Civic Hacker Network with one year of access to the entire Civic Hacker Summit archive for just $49. The paid membership is $100 a year normally, but if you're listening to this before the Thanksgiving holiday in the United States in 2020, you are catching this special offer in celebration of GIS Week. So head on over to our website, civic-hackers.org, and click join the network to learn more. Remember to enter the promo code GISDAY2020 at checkout to get the special rate of just $49 for an annual paid membership to the Civic Hacker Network. Thanks so much to Esther and Patrick for sharing the amazing work Azavia does and continues to do. You can learn more about this company on their website, azavia.com. And they open source their work, a lot of it, so definitely check out their GitHub, which is at github.com azavia, where there are many useful repositories. As always, and not just near to the Thanksgiving holiday, we end with gratitude around this joint. So let me just say how appreciative I am for all of the GIS educators out there, as well as educators who engage with GIS. The industry is really good at educational outreach, and I continue to be amazed at the opportunities I keep seeing coming across my, you know, Twitter and in emails and newsletters um, for the youth. These things are so important, especially since that's how we get more of the next thing I'd like to express gratitude for which is all of the creative civil servants, activists, and advocates who continue to think of new ways to use technology, including GIS, in ways that further positive change in communities. From COVID contact tracing to storms and climate change risks, racial equity and decolonialized geography, there are GIS heroes all over the place working for change. And thank you, listener. I'm thrilled that you have somehow found this podcast, and I sincerely appreciate your support. If you haven't already, please take a moment to rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts for two reasons. The first is that your feedback helps me create something that better serves this community. And the second is that it helps other people discover this podcast. Finally, remember to follow the Civic Hacker Network on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and to subscribe to our email list for an invitation to join us on Slack. You can find all the relevant links on our website, which is civic-hackers.org. If you prefer civic-hackers.org. I'm Lori McNeil. 
I wish you health and all the good things between now and your next listen to the Civic Hacker Podcast. Problems have solutions. Let's get to work. The Civic Hacker Podcast is a production of the Civic Hacker Network. The Civic Hacker Network is a networking and support hub for people using data and technology to create positive change in their communities. Join the network for free at civic-hackers.org.